Thank you uh, very much. Very excited, actually, guys, to get to share with you today from the book of Zechariah. Actually, uh, as you mentioned, we've been around for a while. We uh, have the incredible privilege of being, my wife Jennifer and my three boys, incredible privilege of being one of the first families that was actually sent out from Cornerstone to be missionaries. And we ended up in Papua New Guinea with the Shantares. Perhaps you've heard about them. We're, we're kind of as a church rallying around the cause. Tim has finished translating the Yembe Yembe New Testament. And we're, we're looking to help him fund the printing of that and so forth. So we ended up in separate villages. But we were both in New Guinea. And uh, my wife and I returned due to some health reasons from her and her son. Um, and so here we are. Speaking of my wife and I, we actually this week celebrated 20 years of marriage. Pretty cool, huh? Um, yeah. And then as I, I did ask for Zechariah, I didn't pick the weekend. Lo and behold, as I was studying and preparing, I came to realize that it was 15 years ago this weekend that we came to know Jesus. So that's, that's pretty cool too, isn't it? Okay. Uh, Came back from New Guinea and uh, went to, enrolled in seminary, began to study, and I had an opportunity to go to Israel, and I thought maybe if it's okay, we just look at a couple pictures as we launch our time here today. Pretty much anything Jesus mentioned in Israel, if he even remotely mentioned it, somebody built a church or a shrine over it, right? And so uh, we can get our first slide up here. Um, this would be the Church of the Nativity. They built right over the top of where they think traditionally, we don't know for sure, where Jesus was born. Uh, some goofballs used to ride their horses in there, so they really lowered the door. Go inside the church, go downstairs uh, at the next slide, and they say, this is right where he was born. The manger would have been like right there, and yeah, uh, we're not really really certain about that, but it is neat to go to these places. Uh, from there, we went to where we believe Jesus Christ may have, in fact, been crucified and died. Uh, Catholics say it's, it's kind of over here. The Christians say Catholics never get anything right. It's got to be over here. <laughs> Um, and so this does not match. Can you take my volume down a notch? I'm getting an echo. This does not match your, uh, your Thomas Kincaid uh, picture, but this would be Golgotha. Um, this would be a bus stop. Uh, far less than romantic if it was here in the United States. Somebody would have spray painted it by now. But that is where we believe quite possibly our, our Lord and Savior was crucified. Uh, from there, we went, uh, we looked at the tomb. I don't know for certain that this is where he rose from, but you see... Uh, uh, quite possibly, he did, in fact, lay in there, and then, thank God, he, he rose. Uh, powerful, powerful places. From there, we went to the, to the Sea of Galilee area, and I tell you what, I, I, had a, I had a glass of wine and a cigar with my feet in the Sea of Galilee. I have my vices. It's okay. Um, <laughs> You read the stories of what was happening there. I can tell you firsthand, if you go, the, the walk on water thing was apparently a one-time deal. It doesn't work. Um, good way to ruin a cigar, but that's not the point. Then we left there, and we went up to an area, and this is where, this is where things really got intense for me, is we went to an area, uh, this little ancient ruin right here called Mount Megiddo. And the thing about Mount Megiddo is it overlooks the valley of Megiddo. You may know that valley referred to as the Valley of Armageddon. And I went to a, a number of places where Jesus had been. There is no indication in the scriptures that he's ever gone there or that he'd been there. But there's every indication in the world that he's coming there. And as I stood on that mountain overlooking this plain, listening to this teacher, looking at some text, I'm pretty much freaking out here, people. Because according to Revelation chapter 16, it appears that the world's armies are gathered in the valley of Armageddon. And remember the lamb thing? We're not, we're not doing lamb this time. Jesus Christ returns to the valley of Armageddon. And, and if I can express to you with a certain amount of humble certainty, I think the church of Jesus Christ returns with him. 
Because according to Revelation 19.11, He arrives with two armies. He might just be one of those armies. And see, the book of Zechariah speaks of this event uh, significantly. So as I looked at Zechariah through a whole new lens, and so Todd said, hey, I'm going to give a couple, a couple of rookies a chance. You want a shot? I said, Zechariah? And he said, sure, go ahead. And so here we are. As I studied the book, uh, some, some commentators said the book of Zechariah is the most messianic book in the entire Bible. Wow, I was taken back by that. Certainly right up there with, with, uh, with Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. When I say messianic book, understand, we say Christ, they said Messiah. Christ is not his last name, okay? We call him Jesus Christ. No, Jesus the Christ would actually be more appropriate. And it comes from the term Messiah. In the Hebrew, it would have been Meshiach. See, in Genesis chapter 3, God made man and said, I want your love and affection, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to decide for yourself. And Adam rebelled, and he died. And when he died, God made a promise to them in Genesis 3.15 that a seed from the woman would come, a deliverer from the woman would come. And our Jewish friends came to know him as Meshiach or as Messiah. We say Christ, right? Okay, so we're fairly up to speed on that. Understand uh, the book about uh, Zechariah speaks much about our Messiah, about our Christ. If you've been here this summer, you you are up to speed a little bit, right? We understand God chose uh, the nation, the demand of Abraham to build the nation of Israel in response to ongoing rebellion. His heart and his intention was to build this people who would in turn reach the nations, okay? Uh, And uh, they rebelled and and didn't exactly do that, but... uh, They were given uh, two covenants. One, the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. Abram was put to sleep. God makes a covenant with himself. Genesis 15, I will fulfill this. Nothing, no conditions were put on Abraham or or any of his descendants. The Mosaic covenant, on the other hand, the giving of the law, there were conditions. Okay, our Jewish friends violated those conditions. As a result of that, they were carried off. They were dispersed. After 70 years, they were allowed to return. Sadly, only a few of them did. God raised up the prophet Zechariah along with the prophet Haggai to encourage them to return, to rebuild in Jerusalem because he was not done with them yet. Haggai is kind of a Nike guy. Get it done. Get out there. Build. Look at you guys. You're living like a bunch of fat cats. What about my temple? Rebuild the temple? I got a plan. I got a purpose. Zechariah tends to go, go after the plan, after the purpose. And he speaks of these events where it's just like, hey, I'm not done with you yet. And we'll look at that today. Okay, some of the neat things in Zechariah I'm going to skip over the top of real quick. If you're anywhere near, remotely close to anything kind of Christian the week before Easter, you hear about Jesus riding in on a colt, right? Behold, your king comes to you. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes... That root prophecy, the source of that, is right here in the book of Zechariah. i got to tell you, I'm going to stop there for a minute. Really something interesting there. When Jesus rides in, we tend to think, there he is. He's finally telling everyone that Messiah is here. Here's the Messiah. Wrong. According to Luke, he spoke only words of judgment. He didn't say, here I am. I'm I'm going to take care of everything you ever wanted. Spoke only words of judgment, concluding in Luke 19.44, he says, Your enemies are going to destroy you because you did not recognize your time of visitation. In other words, you didn't recognize, you didn't believe, you didn't get who I was, and it was too late. Mark, the Gospel of Mark says, Jesus got off the colt, looked around, it was late, and he left. Preached that on Palm Sunday. Not what we think, is it? We'll talk about that, why 
did Jesus speak only words of judgment? Uh, You understand that Jesus Christ was betrayed by one of his friends for 30 pieces of silver. That would have been the price you paid if if you had a slave back then and he was kind of worthless and I killed him, I'd say, here's 30 bucks. That'll, That'll cover it. Worthless slave. Jesus was betrayed for And then, this is the most exciting part of the book for me. See, Zechariah portrays Yahweh returning to dwell with his people. Now, we're inserting today, in the summer we've done it, if you've noticed, we're inserting the term Yahweh in place of Lord, which is probably what your Bible says in all capitals. Okay, I'm not a credentialed guy, don't have a published book, don't have lots of initials after my name, but I can tell you, I personally think going to capital Lord was a mistake. Why? Because looking at it through the lens of today, it's ambiguous to us. We don't know what it means. When you see capital Lord, it means Yahweh, right? Our old, uh, older translations would say Jehovah, flat out Jehovah. And people say, well, they didn't use J's. It wasn't Jehovah. Okay, whatever. We're going to say Lord, okay? We're going to say, actually, excuse me, we're going to say Yahweh today. But check this out. This is the most intense thing for me. The book of Zechariah portrays Yahweh returning to dwell with his people as their king in the exact same way that the New Testament portrays Jesus Christ returning to dwell with his people as king. And can I tell you, they're talking about the same exact thing. That's why I affectionately call him my Jehovah Jesus, who is the person of Jesus Christ. And then, amazingly, the book of Zechariah portrays Israel <clears throat> as a nation finally accepting Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You understand, as a nation, they rejected him. The individuals came to faith, just like I hope you have. They received the gift of eternal life. But the nation said, no, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> take a minute and explain that. Jesus was publicly identified early on in his ministry by his cousin John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah. Now, our Jewish friends had the book of Daniel. They had a timeline. They were looking. They had delegations going here and there. Where's the Messiah? He's coming. We know he's coming because Daniel told us he was. And then Jesus shows up and he says, I'm him. I'm the God man. I'm the one that Isaiah talked about. I'm the Messiah. And then he began to do a series of what we'll call messianic miracles. Now, they were messianic miracles because according to Jewish theology of the day, they were miracles that only the Messiah could do. For example, John 9. If you read the text there, you see that there was an individual born blind. Jesus healed him. Read it through a few times. You'll notice something. They seem to be caught up on this whole born blind thing. Go get his parents. We want to know if he's really born blind. Because see, in their thinking, they could heal a guy who went blind, but not a guy who was born blind. They actually linked it to the sin in the mother's womb in Jewish theology, but that's not important. Jesus healed a man born blind. In their mind, only Messiah could do that. Jesus healed someone with leprosy. There's provision in God's word for for what to do if someone was healed of leprosy. Rabbis couldn't figure out how to do it. What did they conclude? Only Messiah can heal someone of leprosy. So when Jesus shows up and does these miracles, what's he screaming to these delegations? I'm the Messiah. Your leadership in Israel, and quite frankly, you hate his guts because he sat down with a prostitute. Oh, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. They hated him. We got we to get rid of this guy. We got to think of a way. But the miracles, what do we do with the miracles? What do we do with the people? They're following this guy. Ha! Jesus does do miracles, but he does them by the power of Beelzebul. He does satanic miracles. The scriptures call this the unpardonable sin. Okay, Matthew chapter 12. A lot of times we get caught up on that. Can I tell you right now, everybody do this. Did it work? 
Okay, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. There's absolutely nothing you could do that would take you beyond the grace of God or the cross of Jesus Christ. Absolutely nothing you can do today. The unpardonable sin was the rejection of Jesus Christ at that time by, re- by saying his miracles were Satan. Okay, they rejected him. From that moment forward, spoke in parables. From that moment forward, he just railed on this generation. He said the people of Nineveh, They're going to come and they're going to testify against you guys because of this, this rejection. From that point forward, he began to do everything for the benefit of the 12 who would build the church. And here we are. Understand that division. So, by and large, the nation rejected Jesus Christ. Real quick, interesting. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 through 42, Moses prophesied. This has been way before Jesus. He said, look, the Jewish people, despite this incredible covenant, will be scattered throughout the world. He says, but God will call them back. God will fulfill his word to Abraham. However, before he does, they have to repent of their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. This is fascinating, though. The iniquity in the text of Leviticus 26 is in the Hebrew singular. Therefore, it is specific. They have to repent of a specific sin before they will receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant would be peace in the land with their king, their Messiah, and so forth. What is the one sin that our Jewish friends have to repent of before? they get their kingdom and therefore before Jesus Christ returns they have to repent of their rejection of Jesus Christ then he will return to them and actually Zechariah 12 captures that Zechariah 12 10 Yahweh speaking he says I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they've pierced and they'll mourn for him they'll mourn for Jesus it goes on to say each one will go to his own family in his own home and they will mourn Hosea 6 says they'll mourn for two or three days they'll call out to Meshach to come and deliver them and he will it will be a brutal process according to the scriptures in fact Jesus went on to say that in this time period this end it would be so brutal But if somebody didn't shorten it, nobody would survive. Okay, actually, we don't have a... We could have spent all summer in Zechariah. The book is loaded. My goal today is to look at two specific themes, okay? And so I actually asked someone else to do a reading for us today. Linda McCoy, uh, a past husband. um, Did I say that? Actually, she would be past wife. Uh, I get a little worked up here, so trying to read, I would probably go 100 miles an hour. Can we just stop and listen here? Um, to the words from Zechariah 1, 7 to 2. Go on for us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of Yahweh, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of Yahweh said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. And Yahweh answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says Yahweh of hosts, 
I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says Yahweh of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and, and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then Yahweh showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares Yahweh, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares Yahweh. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says Yahweh of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. What you're seeing is just in that short section of Scripture, it really captures the, the heart of the book. I, I, I am coming, he says. First, we're introduced to this being called the angel of the Lord, and we'll, we'll get to him in a minute. But then God is saying, no, 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 I'm coming. I am extremely jealous for my people, for Israel, for Zion. I'm coming. They have been dispersed. And he's saying, flee back to Zion. Come back. Right? And this idea of this restoration of the people of Israel. They had been scattered. They had been dispersed. They're coming back. And he says, you know what? I'll deal with the nations. I'll deal with those horns. And there was four specific nations at that time. I can tell you right now, there's a whole lot more than four nations that would love to destroy Israel today. Make the connection. Why the persecution in Israel? Jesus Christ, the land promise. That's why. And then again, we see in there that I'm coming. I'm coming to dwell with you, says Yahweh. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about this individual, this being in chapter 12, we're introduced to him as the angel of the Lord. He actually appears throughout the scriptures. Amazingly, every single time he does, he is either identified as, in fact, Yahweh, or as, in fact, Elohim, which would be the Hebrew name for God, or in the context in which he appears, he takes on divine attributes. And we're going to actually take a second here and look at just a couple of them. This first one here would be in Genesis, oh, Genesis chapter 16. The angel of the Lord appears. Now, I don't really have the time to dig into the, the text as to uh, what exactly uh, the message was. Not really important. But the angel of the Lord appears actually to this woman. She kind of got a raw deal from Abraham and his wife. And um, Yeah, but the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, so forth. 
And look at what she says. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. But wait a minute. It was the angel of the Lord speaking to her. He goes from the angel of Yahweh to Yahweh himself all throughout the scriptures. The next one we'll look at. Um, and then he goes, she goes on and says, you are Elohim of seeing. If truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Fantastic. Genesis 22, actually, we see the same thing. This time, Abraham got the right son through the promise. Uh, if you're going to build a nation to bring a savior, you need children. He's given the promise and then later told to take this son and sacrifice him. Fantastic passage because here you have the scene of Isaac carrying his firewood. And basically walked the same trail where Jesus Christ carried his cross. The same geographical area where God would build the temple and where we'd see countless uh, lambs die as a sacrifice for sins and where ultimately Jesus died. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, so he lays him on the altar. He's ready to sacrifice him. The angel of the Lord appears to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Now that would be a reasonable thing for an angel to say. Okay, good, you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He did it again. The angel of the Lord just took upon himself the first person of Yahweh. Shouldn't surprise us that much. God introduces himself in Genesis as a plurality. As a plurality. In fact, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, right, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatini, Eloi, the word in Hebrew for God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually very exciting because it is the only recorded time in the entire Bible where Jesus Christ called his father God. Every other time it was father. Why now? Why God? Because the fellowship, the love, the dynamics are changed as he took our sin upon himself. There was no father. There was God. And as he died, what did he say? Father into your hands. The moment he had bled and died, restoration was restored. And again, we see Father into your hands. He said, Eloi, Eloi. The heme part in the Hebrew is the plural marker, Elohim. We understand the importance of who we're talking about. Our God is a plurality. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit make up the person of, of our God, of our Yahweh. Is this important? It is extremely important. Jesus Christ, very early on in his ministry, said, I am the God-man. I am God, very God. I am the great I am. I am the creator. I am everything. He told his disciples, that if, you've seen the if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was not ambiguous at all. And yet we still today, we have a number of cults that would just pound the pavements and the heart and soul of their central message is two things. One, Jesus Christ is not God, very God. He's not. He was this or he was that or he was the. Jesus said to the Israeli leaders, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, he is the Messiah. Therefore, we have to take on messianic attributes. If your Jesus Christ is anything other than the Jesus Christ in the scriptures, you might as well call him Peter Pan. He's not going to do you any good whatsoever at all. I love it in Matthew 16, we see Jesus with the 11. And he says, so what's the word out there, guys? What are you hearing? Who do people say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. In the Greek, it's the Christ. You're the Christ. You're the one from the Old Testament. You're the one promised from Genesis 3. You're the Emmanuel. You are the God, man, the Son of the living God. Amen. So I ask you today, who do you say 
that he is. The second area where the cults attack is the person of Jesus and then the work of Jesus. See, if you listen to what they say, the cross wasn't enough. The person and work of Jesus Christ, they have some twist, some angle where you actually can become a god. Or you can be one of the very, very, very small people that actually get to live in paradise. Everyone else is kind of cooked and lost forever. The heart root of their message is Jesus Christ is not God. And what he did on that cross was not enough. You have to add to it. This is where we divide with our Catholic friends. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life and think you're going to go to purgatory. It's religious rebellion. It's complete unbelief as to the sufficiency of the cross. It is by grace, through faith, plus or minus nothing. The message of our cults are bringing people. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you guys travel over land and sea to get one convert. And when you do, you make him twice the sons of hell as you are. People are doing that today with this ridiculous message that Jesus Christ is less than God, a very God. If you're unclear on that, please. We've got some brochures out there. Come talk to me. We have an entire Bible school at our disposal. If you're unsure about who he is, please come and talk to us. We would love to clarify you on who he is and what he did, and his resurrection validates all of it. Amen. Absolutely. As a new believer, there's a lot of him hawing on this. Don't him haw. I remember asking my softball team, where does it really say that Jesus was God? Finally, one guy says, I think John 1. I, I talk about Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. They're not our enemies. Linda read scripture today. One of our pastor elders used to be involved in this cult. They're not our enemies. They've been seduced by our enemies. Don't slam the door in your face. Open the scriptures and read to them. No, 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 you don't understand. It is Yahweh himself that came and was pierced for us. The God-man in the flesh. Okay, it all worked out. Let's settle down. Where are we at? All right, let's look at our second theme today. The second theme would be Yahweh himself returning for Israel. We see it uh, all throughout the scriptures. And Linda read in in Zechariah 2, he says, uh, uh, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, after glory he has sent me. And we see Yahweh and the angel uh, doing this whole thing. And one minute they're, yeah, kind of weird. It just blows your mind. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. In other words, yeah, these nations that are messing with Israel, yeah, he's, he's coming. He's going to deal with them. And we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ here. Look over in uh, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh of hosts came, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Understand, the Old Testament portrays Israel as the bride of Yahweh in the same way the New Testament portrays the church as the bride of Christ. Okay, let me tell you something. I, I, it's been a rough, tw- rough but fantastic 20 years with my wife, but I could say in 20 years, I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. You can probably tell, but you mess with my wife, I'm in your grill, right? You're going to mess with my wife, you're going to step over my unconscious body, okay? There's just nothing going to happen to this precious woman. Um, and, and essentially, Yahweh is saying the same thing. You know, this doesn't mean Israel's perfect. Trust me, I got to go there. I have probably the slightest little glimpse of what it might have been like, what it might be like to suffer like as an African-American under racism. Sitting on the airplane, ugh, have them look at me like that and move their leg. This orthodox, arrogant, I'm going, I forgot, I'm nothing but a Gentile dog to you. Nothing has changed. So please don't think that, that oh yeah, he thinks Israel's, no. 
Not the case at all. The text says what the text says. A lot of people don't like it. Deal with it. The text says Israel. It means Israel. And he's jealous for Israel. He's coming for Israel. Look over in uh, Zechariah 9.16. It says, And Yahweh their Elohim will save them in that day as the flock of his people for their stones of their precious stones sparkling in his hand. He's going to turn this Yahweh. Yahweh's going to turn this Israel. This is the same thing he's done to you. He's made you this incredible, precious child. He's going to do the same thing with the nation. Skip over to Zechariah 12, uh, verse 3. He says, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Go turn on the news. They love to destroy Israel. Why? What is this all about? Two words for you. Jesus Christ. That's why. They brought us the Savior, and he's coming to them. How do you stop Jesus? This is conjecture on my part. Please bear with me. If you're the devil, how do you stop Jesus Christ from returning? Destroy the Jews, because if they don't call to him, he's not coming. Might be conjecture on my part. Seems logical. Then he goes on. He says, in that day, declares Yahweh, I'll strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah. And you get this imagery, like the horses and stuff. This is why I tied into Armageddon. The, the horses probably are, are kind of symbolic of these armies that are gathered to destroy her. And watch out, because during this time period, and this is the time period Jesus said that if he didn't shorten it, somehow nobody would survive. We, we call this the tribulation period. And, and the chronology I'm not discussing today, but it's just this Wow, intensity. And he says, you know what? In that day, I'll set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they'll look on me whom they've pierced and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they'll weep. And he goes on and says, they'll they'll go to their own homes, they'll weep. I got to tell you real quick, go back to Zechariah 12.4. In that day, declares Yahweh, Yahweh is speaking, and Yahweh says, they'll look on me, whom they've pierced. And I said, wait a minute, it was Jesus who was pierced for our transgressions. Who was pierced for our transgressions? Yahweh was. Who was pierced for our transgressions? Jesus was. And so I ask you again, who do you say that he is? The entire Gospel of John was written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing you'd have eternal life. And then, of course, the New Testament goes on and says, you can hold on to nothing else. You have to trust in him and what he did. And here we see Israel finally mourning for Yahweh, Jesus, who was pierced for them. And he returns. And therefore, we, see, we will see this kingdom. Do you pray that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Keep your eye on Israel. Pay attention. The return of Jesus Christ for Israel will be tough, won't be any easier on us. Look at Zechariah 13.8. It will come about in the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my Elohim. Two-thirds will be cut off and perish. Jesus says if he didn't shorten this, nobody would survive. Let me tell you something. Hitler did not kill two-thirds of the Jewish people, and he didn't return to bail out the other third. Two-thirds of the Jewish people will perish, if I'm understanding the text in its literal way to be taken, in this great tribulation period. One-third will come through. Through that one-third, he will establish this kingdom we long for. 
I don't think it'll be any easier. Oh, I'm not a Jewish person. I'm just a follower of Jesus. There are 100,000 believers today in Korean prisons starving to death because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. Should I go on? You think it's going to be any easier on us because we're followers of Jesus and not necessarily the Jewish ones who come to him? At some point, the two just blend together, right? I've been a Christian now 15 years. Have you noticed a difference in the last 15 years? I have. Go ahead, keep speaking the gospel. One of these days, some of us are going to get arrested for it. It's not that far off. This shouldn't surprise us. Zechariah 14.4, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Who? Back up. Zechariah 13.3, then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on that day. In that day, his feet, whose feet? Yahweh's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Who said they're returning to the Mount of Olives, church? Jesus Christ did. Are we getting this? Or should I keep going? This is fantastic. Does anybody else get goosebumps over this stuff? Who do you say that he is? Zechariah 14.9, and Yahweh will be king over all the earth in that day. Yahweh will be the only one in his name, the only one. Who's coming and returning as king? Who's coming and returning as king? Yahweh, Jehovah Jesus is coming. The question then is when? I have no idea. If you've paid attention to what I have to say, you might understand I believe his return is twofold. There's a moment that Paul talks about in Thessalonians where we're suddenly gathered up to him. And we return with him. I'm not just, we're going to leave that right there. I don't know how these things all unfold. I don't claim to know. What do we do in the meantime? Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. See, as I mentioned, our Israeli friends rejected him. And he set in motion another plan. And it hinged on these 11 or 12 individuals And he began to invest in them in incredible ways. And he empowered them. He said, I will build my church. The gates of Sheol or Sheol, I think he actually meant the grave. The grave's not going to stop it. Matthew 16, he invested in them. And then when he was leaving, he likened his departure and return to certain things. He did so through a couple different parables. One is the parable of the talons, which you could read about in Matthew chapter 25. Now, for the sake of time today, I'm not going to read the whole thing. If you've if you're been in church for a while, maybe you've, you've been a Bible study, you've, you've heard some of these parables, and the idea that he called each of his servants and he trusted them with something, right? Here, here's their talent. This is what I'm, I'm trusting you with. This is what I'm, I'm giving you a, a responsibility over, right? Like a, like a, a shepherded, or what do you call it, a responsibility, a stewardship. There it is. I'm giving you a stewardship over certain things, and he gave them to all of them. And then when he returns in the parable, he calls account with them, right? Look at the parable of the talents. And after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Matthew 25, I'm in verse 20. The one who received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. And I don't fall into the mistake of thinking this means you need to go invest your money in the stock market. It's not what we're talking about. The issue here is stewardship. This individual was entrusted with the stewardship when the king left, and he's coming back, and he's going to settle accounts. And the next guy invested his in in like manner, and they heard this term, well done, good and faithful servant. Can I tell you, it should be your absolute highest goal in life, above wealth, above happiness, above anything, that when this master returns, that he would call and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Not everybody's going to hear that. You don't get that for showing up on Sundays. I don't think. You don't backdoor this. Understand this. Your salvation is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You produce a body. Convince me you didn't rise. The same time you disprove the book, I'm hurting. I'm down and out. Otherwise, absolutely not. There's nothing you can do to convince me that my salvation is not as sure as his promise to me and his resurrection from the dead. We're not talking about that now. We're shifting gears. You're saved. You're a child. He's entrusted you with something and he's left. He's going to return. He's going to settle accounts for you. You may or may not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You may not. What do we do with the stewardship with which he's given us? We can invest it. We can go with this this attitude of, uh, I think Todd set the context kind of where we we talk about the love boat, right? Where this idea of lobster tail. I remember my honeymoon 20 years ago. I want another lobster tail all-inclusive in Jamaica, right? Is that our lifestyle here? The stewardship. We have Christians out there spending $50,000 on countertops and bathroom remodels. $50,000? You know, the root source of the prodigal son, the root issue there for prodigal means lavish lifestyle. You have a future inheritance. It's not set in stone yet. The issue with the prodigal son is he wanted it now. He wanted the lifestyle now. I don't want to wait till God gives it to me in his time. I want it now. And so he goes out and he blows it. Lavish lifestyle. Gosh, how many of us live that way? Are we being smart with our stewardship? You want to spend lavishly? Would somebody please help the Chanteurs funds Bible printing? $20,000 they need. I look at Tim and I'm like, he's coming back here busting his butt trying to get it all formatted. And at the same time, I was like, I'm like, dude, where are you going to get the 20 grand? He's like, I don't know. There's something lavish you can spend. This, inc- <clears throat> this requires an incredible commitment on our part because it doesn't come easy. Because one of the first things you learn as a Christian is what? God's sovereign. And he's sovereign and you're blessed and rich. And we like that. It doesn't come natural to live a sacrificial life. No, we want to. And there's always some goofball on TV going, God wants you this way. You know, the New Testament tells you be content with food and clothing. And so we go, yeah, we have a great pastor, Todd. He would never let us fall for a prosperity gospel. We know better than that. But then we turn right around and we go, look at what he's blessed me with. This is so good, 50 grand on a kitchen. So we don't believe the prosperity message as it's proclaimed on TV, but we believe this lifestyle. Jesus said, I'm going to die. It will not stop the building of my church. And then he said to his followers, pick up your cross and follow me. I am amazed at our tendency. And again, if I can say in humility, I don't have the credentials. I don't have the initials after my name. A whole lot better men than me say, that is the heart of the gospel. And I go, really? Because what you're telling the church is that's what the unbeliever has to do. The unbeliever has to pick up his cross and follow me. Why? It's because immortality in paradise with Jesus sucks so bad that you have to pick up your cross. What, you got to carry it up the steps? What, what are we saying here? When do we put those passages on the church? He was speaking to the 11. I don't think he's talking to the world. He's talking to us. No, deny yourself. Join me on this mission. Pick up your cross and follow me. Oh, you're going to get your inheritance. Be faithful now and watch out. The the parable of the talents, can I encourage you? What if you had a year to live? Talk to a a buddy in the foyer today. He's biting cancer. He doesn't know. What if you had a year to live? Who went bucket list? I'm going to jump out of a plane, right? Okay, go ahead. What if, you had a, what if you knew you had a year before Jesus Christ returned? Would you still jump out of a plane? I probably still would, actually, but that's not the point. I, <laughs> what if you knew you had a year before you had to insert yourself inside that parable, and he stands before you, and he says, what did you do with the stewardship I gave you? 
And you go, oh, you should have seen my countertop. <laughs> I got to stop there because I can't be your Holy Spirit. I don't know what this looks like for each of you. You know full well the moment you came to Jesus Christ, you're this new being. You have his spirit. You're empowered with him, for him, for his glory. Go out there. And do it if you need help. My goodness, the resources at this church are absolutely phenomenal. We have a Bible college over here. We have Christians Glow classes. He's going he's gonna to let me teach on my Jehovah Jesus too. But you've got these Grow classes. Join. And we have this new thing at the Bible college called Silo where you can take, literally, we have like PhD guys over there. And they, you can just sit in your small group and let them teach you. Enroll to audit a class. Don't leave here going, well, gee, I'm just not sure about this Bible thing. The book makes perfect sense. It does require a teacher. We have that resource for you. Guys, I, I just thank you very much for, for giving a rookie a shot here and being so gracious with me. Todd will be back in two weeks. I really miss that guy. Um, I really do. Um, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. Um, for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you, Yahweh, Jesus, that you would come. We look forward to your return as king over us. We look forward then to incredible, lavish lifestyle. And I guess folks want harps. Give them harps, Lord. I want to be with you. I want to rule and reign with you like you so intended, Lord. Thank you so much for our time here today. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.